Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. During my trip to ConSim World Expo in Tempe, Arizona this summer, I interviewed a number of interesting people. This is the second of those interviews. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with game company owners, developers, and designers, Mary and Tom. We'll discuss what's coming up next for everyone's favorite little game company, Hollenspiel. Since all three of us were mic'd for this recording, I used an experimental method to record my voice. My voice is hard to hear, but the great content comes from Tom and Mary, so I went ahead and posted the best version I could produce. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Mary and Tom met in the late 90s and became friends over their shared love of film and science fiction. They started dating and were married several years after. They got into the hobby of gaming in 2010. Tom worked as a freelance designer, eventually shifting his focus from Euro games to war games. In 2015, Mary started working for Tiny Battles Publishing, overseeing the production and development of their first 15 titles before leaving to focus on getting Hollenspiel off the ground. In 2016, they launched Hollenspiel, and in the two years since, they've released over 30 games. We'll start this interview with a question on what new games are coming from everyone's favorite gaming couple and favorite little game company. I mean, the next six months we have nine or ten games coming out. So we have um, the Big Push, which some people are playing here at uh, CSW Expo. That's a card game by uh, Renaud Verloc. Uh, then the Lost Provinces. The Lost Promises by uh, John, John uh, Krakowski. That's a hex encounter game in the 1941 uh, Franco Tie War. Yet another game on the Franco Tie War. The hobby's just just filled with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have Campaign of Nations coming uh, the following month from John Tyson. That's uh, nappy. Yeah, operational uh, Napoleonic game. Uh, the campaign around the Battle of Leipzig. Mm-hmm. We have Ribbit from Mark Herman, which is uh, a different sort of game. It's an abstract uh, game, but with uh, we're using a very child-friendly art, uh, really nice-looking art from mm-hmm. artist Will Alhambra. Uh, after that, we have Meltwater, which is a Cold War Goes Hot game uh, set in Antarctica. So it's uh, also Cold War Goes Hot Goes Cold again, I guess. Yeah. Um, we have another uh, Cold War Goes Hot game coming out. Seems to be a popular topic. Uh, before the end of the year, which is NATO Air Commander. It's a solitaire game from Brad Smith. He's a first-time designer, but he does the uh, website uh, Hexides and Hand Grenades. We have Horse and Musket Volume 3, and that's covering the Seven Years' War. That's from Sean Chick. Uh, we have uh, a game about trains and stock that I'm doing, uh, because we have kind of a crossover with that market. 
probably a table battles expansion, but I'm not sure which one yet. I'm working on it anyway. And then uh, This Guilty Land is the big um, game for me this year, which is a uh, two-player card-driven game about the uh, politics, the political struggle, legislative struggle over uh, slavery leading up to the American Civil War. So, you know, a, a, a very light, fluffy topic. It's, uh, but it's important to talk about, right? As we, as we spoke about last night, the, the issue of diversity in our hobby is an important one and one that we should discuss. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, in my view, there are a couple of different perspectives on it. One is diversity in the participants, but also diversity in the way that we depict uh, the diverse peoples mm-hmm. in our games. And uh, so I think this is an interesting important topic and and not only within the hobby but certainly something that could be a catalyst for people to teach and understand and and, uh, so I think it's a very brave very brave effort on your part okay I I I guess I mean I I felt a little um, in deciding to do that subject I I I was a little I don't want to say I was hesitant at first, but I wasn't sure if I was up to the task because this is such a, a heavy topic and there really is uh, a great onus on someone to approach it responsibly and uh, to engage with it uh, uh, thoughtfully. And I'm, I think I'm a fairly thoughtful person, but, you know, I wasn't sure if I... <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Uh, I wasn't sure if uh, I would be up to the the task, but um, or that it would be um, something that there'd be a lot of people interested in. But the great thing about our particular business model is that we can do something without worrying about whether someone's going to be interested in it or not, um, because we have almost no financial risk, so we could take these kind of creative risks. Stuff that you know might not be traditionally commercial, but a story that you want to have told through a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very cool. So um, the other thing I saw played here was the first game you mentioned, which was the big pu- the big push, mm-hmm. and uh, very well received. We we spoke last night to a couple of people that uh, had played it and were very excited about it. We talk a little bit about the big push. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, that's a game by uh, Renaud Verloc, who uh, also did Age of Napoleon uh, some years ago. Uh, it's a card game. Uh, now, we have uh, a map sheet, which is basically a, a card sheet to, to play the cards on, and uh, a counter sheet because uh, we took some of the cards and made them into tokens um, because we didn't think we could just put two decks inside one of our boxes and have people. We have a standard size box. So we wanted to make it feel more like a board game, but it is really a, a card game. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, so it covers... I should probably say this. It covers uh, the Western Front in World War I um, with yearly turns. And the cool thing about this game is that you start each turn with a, a big hand of cards. So there's a production level for uh, each side, which is you know somewhere between 18 and 26 cards. And then those are modified down... Uh, by a couple of factors, by uh, some external factors, uh, such as the Eastern Front, uh, U-boat warfare, uh, naval blockades. And then you also have a bid for initiative. And when you have initiative in the turn, 
there are some important benefits to that. And it's, it's, it's a double blind thing, like you're both bidding simultaneously and revealing. And you're bidding a reduction in your cards. And whether you win or not, you, you still lose those cards. And you have that hand of cards left to divvy up on six fronts. And uh, each front, you're deploying cards. Uh, the initiative player is choosing what front gets deployed first and which of the two players deploy first. Uh, and so you're trying to see, you know, where should I put my cards here? And do I going to have enough cards for this later front? And then you still have cards in your hand that are advantage cards and kind of gives the kind of back and forth tit for tat kind of playing. And uh, so there's a heavy fog of war element, a heavy bluffing element. It is not really a solo friendly game at all, um, which is fine. There are there are there are folks who are like, well, I can't, why can't I play it solitaire? Well, I not all games have to be that. Not all games have to be for um, all player counts or for all players. But um, you have this, th this back and forth, and you have these kind of agonizing uh, hand management kind of decisions. And I think it's just a really smart design um, that uh, really captures a lot of the chrome of World War I, but in a very quick like, two-hour card game. So, uh, you know, he, he uh, submitted that to us, and I was taken with it pretty, pretty immediately. I thought, well, this, this is good. The cards are expensive, but uh, this, is, this is worth doing. Yeah, that, that's fine with the cards. It's, it's a good game. Yeah. So, yeah. So people will pay a little more for it. Well, no. <laughs> Maybe they'll pay a little more, but the, the expense on the cards, <laughs> which is always a shock. We, we think it's worth it. Right. Yeah. Cards seem to be in so many games now. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's the reality, I think, of where we are in our designs. But you mentioned the two-hour playtime. I think that's a... That's... that's people want a shorter playtime mm -hmm. game. Uh, and I think if we want our hobby to grow, I'm talking about the niche that we talk about the most, the war gamers. If we want to grow that niche, we're going to have to provide something other than what we see here at Consum World, right? The, the monster games. Because you can walk around, you know, you, you can visually estimate the age of the group. And, and, and uh, you know, the war gamer, the age is, is increasing. I just spoke to Jack Green in the last podcast, and he said, <clears throat> you, you know, average age, 50-something, 60, right? So, so we have to, if we want this to grow and we want it to continue, we have to find a way to, int to introduce younger players to the games. And we have to find something that plays in an hour or two. Uh, yeah. I think it's just a, a necessity. Yeah, well, most of the games that uh, I've designed in particular, there, there, is, there are a couple that might stretch it to three hours, but most are two hours or less. There are actually several that are about an hour or less. Um, and and part of that is just the reality of playtesting uh, at home with two cats. Uh, so our games are a certain size uh, because we need to be able to fit the map on the table, and they're a certain length because we need to be able to playtest before the cats knock the stuff off the table. So that's. So if we bought cats for all the designers, games would get much shorter. Much yeah, shorter. Much shorter. Your your games your your portfolio now has been very well received and. You mentioned 
table battles. And um, what would be the next options? I know you haven't decided what the next option would be uh, for for an expansion or a follow-on. But what's in your mind? What's the universe of possible? So for for table battles, well, the whole idea with the system is to um, kind of abstract warfare to the point where uh, it it focuses on what's common with set-piece battles across human history. So um, we've had, between the base game and the two expansions, we've had battles from uh, the time of Alexander the Great up through the American Revolution. Uh, And really it can extend in, in any of those directions as long as you have kind of a, a set piece linear battle. Um, so I'm looking at doing a Napoleonic expansion. People are asking about the English Civil War, Thirty Years War. That's the big one people are asking about. Uh, English Civil War, yes. yeah. English Civil a lot, War. Which I was really surprised by that because it's, it's kind of a slightly obscure topic. The American Civil War, um, doing some Middle Ages stuff. Cause I, with the Middle Ages stuff, I can kind of repurpose the Middle Ages battle games I do. Say, okay, I'm going to turn this into a tail battle scenario. Um, we want to get into World War One and World War Two, and there is a fella who's working on some World War Two scenarios. Uh, I have never done a game that takes place past, like, 1870 myself as a designer, so that's definitely somewhere I need to rely on someone else to kind of do the heavy lifting because I just I don't have the head for that, that era, really. But really the thing can can cover all of human history and mary has insisted that i do a dinosaur expansion so i mean that's this can go before human history um really right now when i'm look so the thing with tail bales is it has a pretty quick turnaround time because it's a 20 minute game so it's very easy to test and uh it's pretty light components wise because it's just each expansion is a new deck of cards so um it doesn't take long to design, develop, and test those, uh, especially with our, our print-on-demand model. So um, right now, I'm just kind of waiting to see how Age of Alexander is received, how some of the, the ways I've, I've tweaked the system are received in that, and then apply that uh, going forward. I do want to get back to like a, a gunpowder kind of era, but the only uh, issue with that is there's a, a mechanism in the base game and it, it, it means present in the whole system, but it, it has to do with a, a bombard action uh, that reduces morale cubes. And the base game scenarios were built with the idea people would use that. Um, and so th- the way the game works is that as you route enemy formations, you take their morale cubes and cubes pass back and forth until one side doesn't have any left and they lose. And I had morale cubes that were split like, you know, three to a side or two and four to a side or whatnot. And what would happen when people were playing suboptimally, uh, they weren't using the bombard very often, and they would just attack, attack, attack. And the big part of this game is the need for force preservation and for choosing your attacks, because if you just throw everything you have at the other guy every time, every turn, like you might do in a Hex Encounter War game, you're very quickly going to have units that can't really attack. So, um, with the two expansions, I altered the morale cube mix so that instead of like a 2-4 or 3-3 split, 
is more like a 1-3 or 1-4 split, so where one side has the kind of onus to, to win decisively and not suffer that many losses. Usually, like in the Alexander expansion, Alexander almost always has just one morale cube because one loss, you know, will create a situation where you wouldn't be recreating the historical results, so the onus is to win as decisively as he did against these, these long odds. Um, that's not as appropriate for uh, the gunpowder era. Tom, you were talking about including dinosaurs in the potential... Yes, so so the thing with table battles, each, each of the scenarios, each of the battles, I try to find a way within the constraints of this system to uh, get some of the chrome across, get some of the the, the events that make the battle special across. And when I'm doing something about dinosaurs, uh, presumably fighting each other, I don't have that because there's not a historical scenario to look to. Um, and I think particularly because dinosaurs uh, appeal to people named Mary and to kids especially, like those two groups, are two great groups. Um, I'd want something that would be accessible to, to young people, and so I would probably need to find, a, probably be like a standalone more than an expansion, I think, um, and find a way to change the system so that instead of being, here's eight scenarios in this box, uh, here is the system where you can mix and match dinosaurs as you see fit, and it's just figuring that out, and I haven't figured that out yet, but it is on my list, and I will do it. Now I have to get you to commit to sci-fi. You have not committed to that yet. To doing a science fiction game? Well, I did one science fiction game before uh, for no. another publisher. Oh, Table, table Battles, Battles Science Fiction. Okay. She, so well, at, at what scale would you want to do uh, sort of the, the large capital ships against each other? you want a Death Star in this, or are we talking about blasters? Hmm. I haven't thought that far into it. Sci-fi is my favorite. Um, sci-fi movies, sci-fi. I've read so many sci-fi books. Right. Uh, that is my favorite. So he's got to do some kind of sci-fi. If it's not table battles, we'll find something else. <laughs> yeah. Martin Wallace said the great thing about sci-fi is you really don't have to do a lot of research, right? Yeah, I mean, you can you can you can make it what you want to make it. Yes. And it has to be whole. It has to. To stand up to scrutiny, right? Yes, that, that's the whole thing. He has nothing to, to go on. Right. So now um, we have to make up an entire uh, world. Well, not an entire world, but for the, the, con uh, the uh, concept that we're trying to get over and the limits we have, that has to hold together. Fair. And in some ways that's, that's harder than doing a historical design because with historical design, I can, I can lean on the you know the thing already happened it already happened a certain way and i can look at why it happened that way and how it could happen differently and what factors were at play and just find a way to represent that in the game so um whereas doing something kind of whole cloth because uh, i did do uh, a fantasy game uh previously and a science fiction game previously uh, for another publisher and those were very difficult for me to do and I'm not sure if they were as successful as the historical designs. Um, yeah, I never understood. I really liked High Speed Hover Tank. Yeah, and we have the rights to that back, so mm -hmm. we'll probably be doing something with it at some point. It's it's a. It's, uh, hover, it's about hover tanks. 
that yeah. move at high speeds. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe it needs the minis. Which I don't know if we'd be able to do minis yeah. because that's just that's not really our the way we yeah. approach our business. Yeah, we were talking about maybe doing standees, but we don't know. Yeah, yet. so it'll still be like like our basic counters, but with with a, a standee. But that's still going to be more expensive because the counter sheet, the way we produce games, is uh, much more expensive than a traditional publisher uh, because we do uh, print on demand, and uh, I like to call it the uh, least efficient and most expensive way. To produce games the on on a variable cost basis, right? On yeah. Cost per unit basis. Yeah, exactly. The um, on the other hand, the the the, the challenge that you've brilliantly avo- avoided is the challenge of introducing huge amounts of capital into the business, right? Yes, exactly. So so this is a perfect segue, I think, to talk a little bit about your bus- business model and how it differs from many other game companies that have that struggle. We all have a struggle, right? Anyone that has their own business has a struggle for how do you bring the capital to bear. And so what you've done is you've gone to an alternative model that doesn't require as much capital up front, but it gives you a lot of unique flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's a print-on-demand model, and the the way that works is when the customer orders the game, we tell our, our printing partner, uh, Blue Panther, uh, hey, this guy ordered this game, he makes the game, and then he sends it to the customer. The customer pays us for the game. Then in the month, we pay we we pay Blue Panther for all the games he printed for us. So in, in a cash flow basis, we're not paying anything really up front, and uh, there's very little overhead costs. Really, the the biggest cost we have are art costs. Uh, there are some components, uh, wood bits and cards, which are printed uh, more traditionally, but still fairly small volumes. Yeah, but that's still a big outlay. Cash. That is a bit, it does end up being yeah. a big outlay of cash. When we did uh, we did a game called Forex last year, which um, is an economics game, and the amount of money we put out on cards was like more than we had put out at one time on on anything um, because there were two hundred and five cards in the game, and uh, cards are are expensive, and uh, especially when you're doing them in small quantities. So, uh, yeah, so the, the great thing about being a print-on-demand is that, um, first of all, we can, we can fix things kind of on the fly. So if uh, some errata shows up, and we've been pretty good about not having any real major errata in our games mm-hmm. uh, because the quality that, of the game is... That's important. We go over that book again and again, again and again. again. Yeah. That's by design. You, you engineer that into the process. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we can we can make fixes a, as we need to um, for future printings. Now, future printing can be you know two three weeks after the initial printing, and there is no real cash flow problems uh, because when we got into the uh, industry, um, you know we didn't have a lot of money. We never would have been able to fund a traditional print run on our by ourselves. A lot of people have asked us, why don't you do Kickstarter? And the thing with, with Kickstarter uh, is that, you know, I was t- we, were talk- we were talking with uh, Roger Miller and Randy Lean, and, and they were talking about, kick- they haven't done Kickstarters, but talked about Kickstarter. And, you know, the thing about Kickstarter is that you really bring your existing audience with you to Kickstarter. So if you're starting out, you don't have that existing audience. It's very hard to actually make the Kickstarter and fund um, and then you're 
the kind of games we were doing, particularly, we weren't sure if they really were Kickstarterable, where you're going to have that many people wanting to do it. Uh, the other thing about being print on demand is it allows us to be fairly prolific. So, I mean, we're releasing our 29th box game uh, later this week, and we've been in business for less than two years. Um, but part of that also is that being prolific is what allows us to do this full-time, because this, this is our full-time job. It's been our full-time job for about a year and a half now. Yep. And um, we figured that um, if we have kind of okay sales on games, and we do five games a quarter, then we have enough money to pay our mortgage and pay our bills and keep in business. Um, and if the game does better, that's great. Um, and we really, the way the model works is, is really kind of failure-proof in a way. Because even if a game were to flop, or to sell hardly any copies, our break-even point is so low, we're not going to lose any money on it. So that allows us to, to take chances. And, you know, we're not the first people to do print-on-demand games. There are other publishers that do that, and in fact... We worked with another publisher that did that before we did Hollandspiel. We learned from them and from how they did the model. But a lot of those games were a lot more uh, traditional. And I think they were aimed at a broader commercial audience, which doesn't necessarily want to go in for, for print-on-demand. Because the thing with print-on-demand particularly is that because the profit margin is so low, because the, the cost per unit is so high, you really cut out any kind of traditional distribution. You're really just looking at direct sales. Um, and that's been our, our, our biggest um, kind of roadblock, is there are people who want to buy our games. And uh, internationally, it's, it's very hard because it has to get across that ocean somehow. Someone needs to pay for that shipping. And if we pay for that shipping, we, we, we've, made no, we've, we've made a loss. We're constantly being asked about European distribution. Well, we've been approached by some European distributors. We've approached some European distributors and they're not interested. We're, we're just With the terms <coughs> we can offer. Yes. We're, we're not giving them uh, enough where they can sell the game for uh, a nice profit. Right. What you really need would be the Blue Panther sitting in the EU somewhere, right? Yes. Yeah, and we looked into that. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and we couldn't find anyone who would do it. I mean, the the, the way the the, co- the the one that we looked at, we had someone in the EU asking around for us, and the one we looked at ended up uh, the price per unit would be more than if we actually send it to them. That was including the shipping and everything. Wow. I mean, it would be it would be it would be, be basically we we would have to sell it at cost, uh, and it would still be more. So they're just not really set up for that. There's not many people in the U.S. who are set up for print-on-demand for war games because war games in particular, you have the counter sheet, um, and that's that's tricky. Um, so all our sales are, are, are direct sales. Generally, we have a few stores that do buy from us, and they, they tend to sell them at uh, an increased uh, price point to the consumer, uh, which ends up being about probably about the same than if they, if they don't pay the shipping but then they don't have the yeah, they don't have to pay shipping uh, that's that's better yeah. <laughs> you don't have that extra money going out but um, that's in Canada yeah 
And we have a store in Japan that does the, does it once yes, in a while. Yes, he, he does that. Yeah. Um, I would I would say that the the thing that gets me the most is we have uh, people who are domestic people who are in the United States who uh, want to buy our games, but they don't want to buy them from us. So, like I want to buy it from Amazon, or I want to buy it from this this thing. And, like we're right here. It's it's the same transaction. You can just buy from us, and we, but they they want. There, there's an aversion to buying direct from the publisher, which I find really odd. Or, or, or said a different way, a comfort with buying through those other channels, right? And so I don't think it's necessarily a negative. Uh, it's frustrating, I'm sure, but I think people do get comfort in those channels. I, my family is so plugged into Amazon right now. Everything we do. I have three college-age kids. They're running textbooks from Amazon. You know, the, the durable goods. Now they deliver groceries from Whole Foods. So, so you know, our, our family's comfort with that one channel is really a little frightening. But, um, but you know, I, I think that's what you're facing, right? Is, yeah. So that's um, just kind of how the model works. And uh, the, the thing about the model is it, it gives us such a tremendous freedom to do games that are different and games that are odd and games that might not be super commercial that other publishers couldn't or probably shouldn't take a risk on. Uh, one of our biggest hits, and it still surprised me how big it was uh, for us, um, it didn't surprise you, Mary, was uh, Supply Lines in the American Revolution because I had been trying to shop that game around as a freelance designer for years and years and no publisher wanted to touch it. Like No one is going to buy this game, no one's going to play this game and it's done really, really well for us. Yes, and I had to push you on that too. He did not want to do it because nobody wanted it. And and he thought, well, the, if nobody wants it... That's it's, the measure of its worth, yep. right? Which was wrong. But I liked it. When I played it, I enjoyed it, even though the rules changed every time I played it. Because <laughs> we were playtesting. Sure. Um, and he... He just did not want to do it. And I said, no, I want to do it. That and I did it. Yeah. And it was the right call because it's a great game. Yeah. And that was, that's the same situation with the currency trading game with Forex. Forex. Yeah. He did so not want to do I it. Want to, it's like and I enjoyed the heck out of that game. So, what, what, so what, I said, we're going to do it. And because it didn't matter. Well, it, the cards. <laughs> the <laughs> cards. cards on that one, that was a lot of money. But... Um, we didn't have to sell 10,000 copies to break even. Right. So I, I, whether anybody wanted to buy that beyond those first few, however many people, so mm. we could break even, it didn't matter. I wanted the game out there, and you were extremely reluctant. I've gotten a lot less reluctant uh, lately. So what, what, the takeaway here is I need to work on that, that dinosaur game because that's, that's going to be another, yes. another big hit for us. But uh, it's I'll buy it. I'll be the only <laughs> one who will buy it. <laughs> you know, it... Um, I, I'd like to get a high-speed hover tank up and running someday soon. I think too. I'd like a high-speed hover tank and I would buy a dinosaur game as well. Okay. So we've already, du- already doubled orders. All right. Pre-orders. All right. There we go. Yeah, we. Um, I, I've gotten a lot more confident uh, because those games have done well, and uh, because we have that that freedom. I've been a lot more confident in exercising it and doing things that are 
potentially more off-putting um, because not every game needs to be everything to everyone. Um, and so that's just why, I mean, I don't think I would have done, would have conceived table battles when we started the company. I don't think I would have conceived of this guilty land when we started the company. Um, I have a negotiation game I'm working on for probably release ne late next year on the piece of Westphalia, and right now that is a seven-player game. I haven't figured out how to make it work for less than seven players, and this is a very tough kind of thing to table. But you're working on it, though. I, I am working on. It. I'm working on getting like like a four to seven range, but it, it's difficult because uh, you can't all the power all the different powers kind of balance each other, and you can't really get get rid of them. And I really have a strong aversion to like bots uh, as a designer. So, and I don't see how they work, especially with a game that's like a, a like a pure negotiation game. Um, Mr. Green would win. Mr. Green. So when Mary and I will will play test uh, games, when particularly when I was trying to do more Euro kind of games, and we needed like a three player test, we had the two of us. We would take turns, taking turns for for Mr. Green. And Mr. Green always won. He he always won. We can never. We couldn't figure out. We must have really been playing him well. I guess because well, we're brain putting, trust. Yeah, right? we we're putting all of our efforts in him and not in what we were doing because he would always win. Of course, he's not exactly a bot, but sometimes I would try to, uh, you know, not play him super well, and he still would would win. That reminds me of that game. I, of I would Carcazole. try and trip him up, and dang, if he didn't. Come yeah. through. Hmm. You remember the game of Carcassonne we played with my brother? Oh my god. That was years ago. So yeah. it was me, you, and my brother. Uh, my little brother. And uh, I mean, he's, he's in his 20s now, but uh, he was a teenager at the time, I think. And um, I, I was thinking of the game. That when you said Carcassonne, I immediately thought of. Dom I know what Carcassonne is, but I immediately thought of that Dominion one. Well, the that Dominion game wasn't great oh, either. That was awful. But, but the Carcassonne game, he was not paying attention at all. Like, he was not engaged at all. He's like, you know, whatever, here's a tile. Okay, here's a tile, whatever. I'm checking my phone, here's a tile. And he won by a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the last time we played Carcassonne. So at that point, I was like, that was, that was one of our gateway games. That was one of the first games we got when we got into the hobby. And then after that, it was like, he can win without even trying <laughs> his first time playing it. We're not, we're not... We're done with this. Well, I think there are some sad. games that just accrete. Every turn, they accrete some score, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Carcassonne is one of those. Um, now, you can you can be good at it, and you can capitalize on the mistakes of others. Uh, but but I you know I think that, uh, that that's just characteristic of that. But it, you know it's interesting that you talk about this designer self doubt, right? I mean, any it seems like people that are creative can fall into this trap, right? That that. Um, and, and it happens to me. I feel mm -hmm. it. I felt it with Liberty or Death, and I just said, "Are people really going to enjoy this? Is this any fun?" And, and after you become so close to it, I feel that way with um, South China Sea, right? I mean, it just in my in my gut, I, I worry that people aren't going to like it or have or enjoy it, right? And it's not going to be a nobody's going to want to buy it, and and or or worse, that critically, no one will have fun, and. Um, you know, it's driven me to redo it twice. So this is the third iteration now from the playtest we saw last night. People are enjoying it. And and I think that that self-doubt has driven me to some solutions 
um, of things that that I should have fixed, but you know that that self doubt just continues to ring in my head. Well, doubts are they're extremely useful part of the process, and they're extremely underrated part of the process. Um, there's there's a tendency for uh, creators in public to try to project a lot of confidence. Uh, because the minute you say, well, I'm not sure about this, everyone's like, oh, well, they're not sure about that, you know. Uh, but uh, it, it requires you to interrogate the game. and they, Even if, some, if someone asks a question about a game, and even if I, I know what the answer is, I still have to go through through it in the process and reevaluate it. Uh, I think I'm, I'm helped in that, uh, in that I'm, I am fairly prolific, and I tend to work on a game, set it aside, come back to it. And when I come back to it, I can approach it fresh and say, okay, this needs to be cleaned up a little bit, or this, this is still working great. Um, so that, that uh, kind of allows those doubts to be used in an organic way where it doesn't like cripple me or paralyze me. Um, you also have Mary who says, this is stupid. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> But you also say this is wonderful, right? I mean, yes. I think that's what we've heard is that yeah. that that you know we're not we can't be the worst case we would be paralyzed by our self doubts, and in your case, where Tom might have some questions and lack some confidence in games that have been rejected by other publishers, you knew were good, mm-hmm. and you said, Tom, publish it, come on. Yeah, well, we work well together, and he has all these self doubts, and I'm, I can see. Or something's good, and he's doubting himself, and it's like, no, this is good, mm-hmm. or this is stupid, fix it, right? And then he'll fix it. Right. And there are even times when we don't. And I've actually come up with a few things. You have from time to time. Yeah. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Yeah. He actually let me do it a few times. <laughs> I think there'll be more of it. I hope so. That's uh. Some of my suggestions get in there, especially when we've been play testing. Yep. 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 You guys are a great team. I love it. I love it. So let's um, let's go back and talk about some of the games. Uh, you know, the supply lines is interesting to me because it's been such a big hit, but. But, you know, the one I'd like to talk about the most is this Guilty Land. Okay. And, um, you know, as we've talked about, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to do because you bear such responsibility that you may not bear by just doing a game on the Battle of Brandywine, right? So, so, um, so, so maybe give us a, an overview of yeah. how the game works and mechanically how you think about it. So um, the, the general, I guess, thesis of the game... Uh, is that the American Civil War really couldn't have been prevented. It it would have happened in some way or another because you have this moral issue of of slavery um, and you can't really find... There's no compromise there. There's no way to work that out between the two sides because, well, first of all, one side isn't right and the other side is very, very wrong. Um, but they're so radicalized as well that they can't really find that middle ground, and trying to find that middle ground is kind of futile. Um, I'm not going to uh, name uh, a, a particular game, but there is a particular game 
that that um, that I know of that ends. The game ends with all players losing if the Civil War starts. The idea is that you know there had to be some way to to find a uh, you know a middle ground, and there there can't be a middle ground on the issue of whether or not someone is a human being. Um, so the game is a two-player game, and you have each player represents kind of an abstract idea. There's justice, which is working for the abolition of slavery, and oppression, which is working for its retention or its spread. Now, between those two, there is a non-player faction called Compromise, which is trying to keep the status quo. Um, and that actually has two flavors, one that leans towards justice, one that leans towards oppression. And so the kind of marker play in the game uh, is about trying to convert the other guy's compromise to your side and then your compromise to your actual fully committed side. Uh, and generally, once that radical radicalization happens, once you have someone clearly on your side, it's very hard for the other guy to, to get them off the fence. Because once people have very strongly held opinions, it is hard to dissuade them. Um, so it is a card-driven game, and what is really unusual about it is that it is there's no hidden information. So there is what's called an event display, and there, there's a deck of 50 cards, and there's 26 blue cards for justice and 24 red cards for oppression. And the cards are dealt out to the event display. Um, and um, at the beginning of the game, it's dealt out until each player has four cards. Now, that generally statistically results in a 4 4 split. Sometimes it's a 4 5 split, sometimes it's a 4 15 split. Uh, so you get some statistically aberrant stuff there, but there's uh, victory points and compensation for that. Um, and then those are, that's basically your, your hand of cards. The other player can see your hand of cards. You can see their hand of cards. You know what they're capable of doing. Uh, now, to use the card, you have to spend something called political will, or, or PW. Uh, and the way PW works is every time that you use it, every time you achieve something, it also actually kind of energizes the other side and they gain PW. This is something that you see a lot in American politics, and generally politics throughout history, um, is that when one side makes gains, the other side gets mad about it. And so the PW goes back and forth, kind of like a seesaw effect. And this is something I had in a previous game called Optimates at Popularis, which was a game about politics in the Roman Republic. That was a much more abstract game, much more deterministic. The deck here gives us more of a swing factor. Um, so, throughout the course of the game, you're trying to convert uh, people to your side with uh, public opinion actions, and you are trying to pass laws that are favorable to, to your uh, interpretation of things. And uh, points are scored, victory points are scored for laws each turn. Um, there are also violence cards, and the way violence cards work is that they will increase your side's organizational capacity, which is uh, kind of help... Oh, so I should probably... Let me backtrack a little bit. So uh, there is, in addition to the hand of cards you have in the event display, you have kind of an ancillary hand of cards called your reserve. And um, you build this over the course of the game, and it's kind of a permanent set of cards. Like, once you put a card there, it's basically going to stay there the rest of the game with you know, a few uh, things that will take it out. And you can use it pretty much every turn. 
So you're kind of building an engine that you can use to sway public opinion or to try to pass laws or whatnot. And to do that, you need to increase your organizational capacity. You do that by playing organization cards. It also happens with the violence cards. It increases your organizational capacity, but uh, violence also will scare a lot of people off. It will make people go more towards the center, away from the, the, the radicalized side. So when that happens, you know, you're going to lose support in, in each region on the map. And that can be pretty catastrophic. So the question is, why would you do that? Well, that card can't be discarded. That's, that's the poison pill. You have to find a way to take it, or you can kind of tuck in the reserve if you have enough room in it, uh, in your reserve. So that's kind of the, the, the interplay of the cards and, and the markers. And all the cards, they fall into these types, the public opinion cards, organization, violence, law cards. But... Um, they're not event cards in the sense people are, are used to with a CDG, where, you know, this card does this thing and this card moves these markers. They all just allow you to take that kind of action. So that kind of decreases the, uh, the problem where if you don't know the deck you, you, in a CDG, you, you sometimes have trouble um, competing. So that was, that was my uh, particular solution to that. And again, all that information is, is open. So uh, that kind of creates an unusual dynamic because I know that you can do this if I do that. And maybe I want to do this to force you to do this thing so that I then can do this thing on a following turn. Um, so at the center of it, there's, there's uh, the game's... Al- the game's about deadlock. So something I do in a lot of my games, uh, this includes table battles, uh, uh, this guilty land, otherwise the popularis, is I have this decision space where um, you want to block the other player from doing things. And each player's blocking each other and pushing against each other, trying to find an advantage. Once you find that advantage, the game can turn into a steamroller. You know, and so you have that onus to stop them from doing that. And so you have that kind of uh, frustration pushing against each other. Now, I find that, that fun, and, and some players do. Some players don't, and uh, players who don't should probably stay away from a lot of my designs, actually. Uh, that, that's a big problem with uh, some people have with table battles, which has been very popular for us. But the way table battles works is, you know, you have actions and you have reactions. So if you... Uh, if I'm attacking you, you can screen that or you can counterattack as a reaction. And the thing is, if you can do it, if you have the dice set up to do it, you have to do it. And if you do it, then on your turn, you don't get an action phase. So I can keep doing action, you have to react, action, you have to react, until I can break through and actually do some damage. And then at that point, the cycle resets. And there are people who like that and get it, and there are people who do not like that. And that is fine. That is valid. There are plenty of other games that don't have that. Pretty much every other game doesn't have that in existence, so they they can have those games. That's what this game is. So. So there's a personal preference people have across the the hobby for conflict. Yeah. And uh, so your games certainly provide the conflict, and I like the conflict in the games myself, so. But I play with a group in San Diego that, uh, you know, stay away from my little part of the sandbox because I don't want 
fight you and I don't want mm-hmm. you to fight me. So the, the big hit in your portfolio has been supply lines and you kind of mentioned that. Do yeah. you agree with that? Uh, I would say supplies and table battles are, are probably the two biggest games that I've designed. Now, our, our biggest hit overall is probably Infamous Traffic by, uh, by Cole Worley. And then Forex actually uh, probably is right up there with supply lines and table battles, but uh, that's that's very much not a war game, so... Uh, yep. so, so as it relates to supply lines, uh, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the mechanisms within that that you think make it, uh, make it popular and, and, of course, make it different. Well, I, I think the big thing is is that there is the focus on on supply. So uh, each turn, the cities will generate so many food cubes, which let you march, and so many war cubes, which let you fight. And so you don't have a lot of supply because um, one question I think people tend to ask when they when they look at the American Revolution and they don't have a lot of uh, depth of knowledge about it is why didn't the, the British just, just wipe the floor with us? Because they, they had these, these big armies that were well-trained and whatnot. Well, one thing is that Washington was, and, and Green for that matter, were masters of, 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 of retreating, of, of Fabian tactics, but, um, which is replicated in the game. But the other thing is that they never had enough supply to do it. There was a, a monogram, what, what started me with this game, there was a, a monogram uh, I read uh, by a guy named Major John Tokar uh, called Redcoat Resupply. And the, the basic thesis of that was every, every time the British were about to, to land like a decisive blow, either they didn't have the supply or they didn't have faith in, in their supply because of uh, problems getting stuff to them or because of corruption uh, within the logistics department. And uh, if you look at... Um, I'm blanking on the name, but luckily I, I have someone who knows a thing or two about the American Revolution sitting across from me here. Um, the fellow, Saratoga, the fellow who came down... Burgoyne. The, Burgoyne. His, his, his uh, supply situation was... Uh, right. Yeah. No, I, I you know, the, the Saratoga in, spe- in specific, Mark Miklos, who did the battles of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and I have this debate from time to time, he talks about how wonderful this victory was, and that it really set the tone, and 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 the wonderful things that happened to enable that victory on those few days. And my point was that Burgoyne's supply problems that preceded the Battle of Saratoga made Saratoga a fait accompli. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, but it was all about supply, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that the the British are at the end of a five thousand mile long supply line, and and uh, had fundamental challenges with uh, with foraging in an unpopular place and, and you mentioned they could wh- why didn't they sweep the floor well they could sweep the floor at any one place they chose mm-hmm. but they couldn't sweep the entire floor right exactly and and it really dictates the the pace of operations and so um, that's something that I, I try to replicate uh, with that system and and then also the fact that um, you know, if, if you're playing a, a kind of a, a standard hex encounter war game on, on the whole American Revolution, you're, you're probably going to see, or any any war game in any subject, you're going to see more 
excuse me, more uh, kinetic action, more battles than would happen in real life. And um, part of that is unrealistic impl- implementations of, of supply. Not that mine is necessarily realistic. I mean, all models are wrong, but some are useful, you know. Uh, but also that um, you don't want to give battle unless you think you can win it. And uh, so it was very important, and I did this in both the Supply Alliance games, that if you lost a battle, um, there is a chance it could be catastrophic. You could risk your whole position in the game on one battle. Uh, and so you, you're not going to stand and fight all that often unless it's at specific pieces of ground that you have to maintain, you have to keep. Um, so it encourages retreating. And actually to further encourage that, I made uh, retreating before combat, refusing battle, um, deterministic. It's not like a die roll like uh, in, in some of the uh, operational CDG kind of games where you may or may not get away. It's, no, you, you can always, re- if you have a line of retreat, you can always retreat. So the onus is on the other guy to not give you that avenue of retreat or to corner you at a place where you can't give up that ground. You do not want to give up Albany or New York without a fight or maybe give up one of them, not both of them, you know, so, um, and that's kind of the thing that really excites people about the game, more than the logistics, I mean, I'm sure there are people, and we've gotten a lot of crossover from Euro gamers who are logistics gamers, they like logistics games more than war games, and they, they dig into it, but a big part of it is, um, if you make a mistake in this game, and the other side sees it and capitalizes on it, um, your your positions are irreversible. You you it has catastrophic effects, and you can lose the game. And so, it's, uh, the responsibility for both players is to play very very well, very very carefully. So you have players, but you're also rewarded for trying to be bold and trying to make that decisive strike. So there there's this this agonizing push and pull there, and I think that's really what has gotten people excited about the game, and that's one reason why with other games that other designs that aren't about that. I'm trying to emphasize this kind of a brittle uh, player positions where, you know, you can lose everything with a bad move. Don't make a bad move. Now, because I'm exploring that space more more uh, extensively, um, I'm also trying to keep my game shorter because um, now supply lines. If you play out the whole thing, uh, it can take up to about three hours. Now, generally, people will concede the game. Most games, supply lines will end in a concession when someone realizes that, that they, they screwed themselves. Um, but the other games, I'm trying to make them you know, an hour or 20 minutes in the case of table battles. This guilty land, once people know the rules, like internal playtests, we can get it done in 20, 30 minutes. Uh, when I first time, it's more like an hour and a half. But once you get it down, it's, it's like 20, 30 minutes. And the thing is, if you make a mistake, yeah, it will cost you, and you will not be able to recover so don't make a mistake and it's more acceptable I think when the game is shorter than when the game is longer for some people at the same time there are games like the 18xx games you make a mistake you're you've lost the game you got four more hours to go you're no longer competitive yeah well I, I think that's what that's to me that's the great thing about supply lines is is that it's a unique perspective on a conflict that we've gained Mm-hmm. Over and over and over, so I so I think that's really the cool thing that you bring to the table with that game, and I think that's that's the 
exciting thing for people like me that love the period to see it from a different angle. It's like uh, it reminds me of uh, the great Mark Herman in his work with Churchill. Mm-hmm. That Churchill's a unique gaming perspective on World War II, something we've gamed over and over and over and over the same way. And and so uh, I, I think that's great. And I think that's led to the popularity of, of your company and the things you guys do. So I, I keep it up. I think it's terrific. I, I like to close with a couple of informal questions. So uh, feel free to work together to answer these. And there's no correct answer, no wrong answer. Okay. Uh, uh, better said, no. there's no wrong answer. Uh, so first question is, what, uh, what do you listen to? What, do you guys... Uh, Share a taste in music, or do you have different tastes? In I love music. I listen to anything classical, jazz, bluegrass, um, rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll, yeah. Um, I listen to some ethnic. Um, I I I actually like Chinese. <laughs> if I hear Chinese opera, I actually enjoy that. That's great. Um, yeah, I I listen to just about anything. I listen to Klezmer if I hear Klezmer. Um, Tom. My, my taste is less diverse. Yeah, modern jazz and elevator no, music. No, no <laughs> that's you're 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 being unkind. Uh, I like. I tend to like either. Uh, I tend to like instrumental. Oh, I'm out there. I tend to like instrumental music. Um, so I tend to like film scores, uh, classical music, quite a bit. Uh, uh, video game music, and more of that's more of a nostalgia factor for me with the video game music. Um, so would that be Super Mario? Or? Super Super Mario, Zelda, that kind right. of stuff. Oh, that's terrific. So, I hate to introduce conflict into the relationship in debating music. The, the other question uh, then would be, what do you enjoy on TV, movies? What have you seen recently? Oh, that, that we have. You're in sync? Yeah, we're we very in sync. We're yeah. more or less in sync, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's some stuff, like like the 50s movies, I have more tolerance for than you do. Well, don't say 50s mute. Movies. Well, well, the big, the big <laughs> '50s epic movies, or the Douglas yeah. Sirk stuff—that's not really your cup of tea. I don't. Like. I don't like biblical epics. No, you don't like melodramas as much. So, what would you see on the positive side? What do you like? What do you see recently? You like? Oh wow! <clears throat> if it's science fiction, I'll go to it, even if it's not very good. I still enjoy it. I usually find something about it that is interesting, that makes me think. Um, we tend to go a lot of big blockbuster movies. You know, oh, we saw The Incredibles. Yeah, we see the superhero movies, the we Pixar movies, yeah. uh, Star Wars and that. Now, yeah. we used to see a lot more... Blade um, Runner. I just saw that on TV. The, the, the new, new Blade Runner. The new one. Blade, uh, Blade Runner Loved it. 2049. I love that movie. And... 
I wasn't paying much attention to how much it was making, and he said, you know, it didn't do well. Uh, how could it not do well? But then the first one didn't do it no. well either. It, it found its legs in, um, in the home. It was a three-hour movie that I woke up after three hours and thought 15 minutes had passed. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I love it when I go to a movie and I'm so immersed, I don't realize. Right. That's wonderful. What about uh, books? I assume sci-fi is in the books. Number one. Yeah. 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 I have read so much. So give me, give me some specifics. What have you read recently that you liked? I have not read science fiction in a little while. Um, I was reading more fantasy uh, fantasy is another thing I like, uh, but um, Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. I was just reading. Swords. And Darn, which one was I reading? Um, I was reading the one with the um, the football. The fo- oh shoot! Unseen academicals. Uns- yes, unseen academicals. Yeah, I I found Pratchett late. Yeah, that was just recently. That's a gift though to find a great author late because it just opens their whole. Yeah, yeah. So I, I still haven't gotten through all of them yet, right. but I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. What about you, Tom? What's what have you read recently? Well, I, either to support your work or otherwise. Well, yeah, I used to read a lot of fiction, but I think since moving into the the game design and doing so much, I've really focused more on reading the, the nonfiction. Uh, right now, um, I'm reading uh, Herodotus, the translation by uh, Tom Holland, who is is no relation to. Mary Holland Russell at all people call me Tom Holland uh, because it's Holland Spiel and no that's that's a different guy he's, he's a historian he's, he's, he's good um, but I'm reading uh, Herodotus uh, uh, the, the histories and um, I tend to read a lot I mean I read a lot of, of you know general history books but I also tend to read a lot of primary sources I know the primary sources aren't always accurate or to be trusted but they make such great stories so you know, I'll uh, I'll read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles or the Annals of Fulda or stuff like that. We get a lot of books on the interlibrary loan from like university libraries, so I can dig into <laughs> really nerdy esoteric stuff like that. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, you know, it's 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 a great it's a great job. This is the best job I ever had. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad we were able to to get you out of working full-time for someone else. My boss is great. I am. I am great. (laughs) And benevolent, right? So the last question would be, what games do you all play when you're not playtesting your own product? (laughs) That's... It used to be Euro games. But once we got into doing, you know, 15, 20 games a year, um... We really ran out of the time to do that and got away from the Euro games. So even now when we do play them occasionally with friends, like they're fine. They pass the time. They're they're enjoyable, but they're not they're not as fulfilling as they used to be. I don't you know, we don't enjoy them in the same way or as much there's, a, there's an emptiness to them, I guess. That's <laughs> that funny. we didn't used to have. So give me an example. What 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 have give me a game that you've played recently? Um, we played Herbaceous with oh, some right. friends, and I enjoyed it quite a bit, so mm-hmm. I actually picked that one up. Uh, we don't really pick up a lot of Euro games, but I did enjoy that one quite a bit. 
and I'm waiting on um oh darn it's um the cabbage we kickstarted something yeah. Mr. Cabbage Head's garden it looked cute yeah and we don't usually kick we've kickstarted like four things total in, in our life and that, that was one and of root. them and we're waiting on root we're waiting on root I'm yeah. really excited for a cold release game root yeah. um but um yeah I mean well once in a blue moon we'll play a game that's not ours but it's been a, been a while you know, I played some stuff at um, a convention in Denver, a heavy con, uh, but uh, mostly I just we play tested our own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wish I had a better answer. I wish I could say, no, yeah, no, look, we look, play this and that. It's a great answer, and I, I, you know, in closing, I'll say, I think you guys, uh, it's you're a delightful couple. It's great fun to interview together. I'm glad that uh, we were able to do it face to face as opposed to by Skype because it you know, really drives home. Uh, how close you two are! What a great team you are! And I think that's a gift. And so, I'm, so it's it's fun for me to watch that, and I think it'll come through on the podcast as well. But uh, uh, keep playing your games. Don't play the other games. Keep keep the high, keep the prolific production up because everybody's enjoying it. You guys have made a great mark in a very short period of time, and I think you've got a lot of interesting things to say. And you've got the business model that will allow for that. So, with that, thanks for uh, thanks for talking to me. Well, thank you for having us. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Visalia, California-based band Slow Season for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. Also, a thank you to the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra for their rendition of The Legend of Zelda Suite. I'll close with a special thanks to Mary and Tom. And that's it for me. As always, dinosaurs and high-speed hovercrafts are an instant vibe. 